Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Our scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11, verses 40, 14 to 36. Would you please stand as we read these verses? I will read the first verse, and after you join it with me, second verse, and continue with me every other verse. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking him from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and divided household of falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guard his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stranger, stronger than he, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whosoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowns were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For when Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to his generation. The queen, queen of South will raise up the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they represented the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp put it in a cellar under a breath, but on a stand, 
so that those who enter may see the light. Your eyes is the lamp of your body. When your eyes is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in your darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its ray gives you light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here today to get spiritual food. We love your word. If we, if we uh, base our life on your word, we know our life will be much better. We thank you for this, Father. In your Lord, Savior's name, Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to be a true Christian? That seems like a pretty important question for us to talk about. Currently, there are in the world uh, 2 billion people that claim to be Christians. About 70% of the people of the United States claim to be Christians. But what does that really mean? What boxes does one have to check to be considered a Christian? Am I a Christian if I go to a Christian church? Am I a Christian if I don't go to church, but maybe I read the Bible at home? Am I a Christian if I don't read the Bible, don't attend a church, but maybe my family was Christians, and so I just kind of claim that title? What does it mean to be a Christian? We're going to try to answer that question today by looking at what Jesus taught in our text in Luke 11. And specifically, when we talk about Christians, uh, we're talking about the kinds of people that go to heaven when they die. <laughs> Real Christians. Uh, Christians whose sins have been forgiven. The people that have God as their Father and Jesus as their Savior. And by the way, that's not everyone. Maybe that's the first thing to say. Being a Christian, being a child of God, is not equivalent with being a human being. Not everyone who exists is a child of God, and not everyone who exists has their sins forgiven by Christ's death on the cross. And so today, we're not just talking about uh, what do people think it means to be a Christian, or uh, what do I think the requirements are to be in this group. We're going to ask, what does Jesus say? And I think it makes sense that Christ should be able to define what a Christian is. And so we're going to let him do that this morning and try to ascertain what he said about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. We begin with our, uh, the first story in our text that really sets the stage for the rest of the conversation. In verse 14, <clears throat> says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. So that, in that one verse, you have the summary of something that we've seen multiple times uh, over the last years. We've been studying the book of Luke. Jesus casts out another demon. This man was... Uh, possessed of a demon that made him unable to speak, <clears throat> presumably for uh, some period of time because it was such a shock to the people uh, when he finally was able to talk. And so Luke tells us that the people who saw this marveled. They were amazed at the miracle working power of Jesus. Matthew's account tells us that they also began to consider if this act of Jesus was evidence that he was the Messiah. Matthew 12, verse 23 says, All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now that's the right question to ask. Uh, Jesus, of course, was the promised descendant of David. He was the Messiah who would come and save God's people from their sins and establish his kingdom on the earth. And so the crowds of people who saw this exorcism were on the right track to ask, uh, maybe this is evidence that Jesus is the coming one. 
And now enter the Pharisees. They were the religious Jews of Jesus' day, very uh, strict and fastidious. Uh, they thought that they knew everything. They thought they were right about everything. And they could not stand Jesus because Jesus continually uh, frustrated them by not keeping their rules and even contradicting some of their teachings. And this is a reoccurring theme in the book of Luke. Jesus does something incredible, something good, uh, like casting out a demon. And the Pharisees are right there to criticize him. They find something uh, wrong with what he did, and they try to convince the people that Jesus really isn't all that he's cracked up to be. They could not deny this miracle. It was evident to everybody there that this man's demon had been cast out, and so they instead accused him of having nefarious motives. And isn't that just like religious people? He had done a great thing, uh, and they find some reason not to be for him. They did not want to submit to his authority. And so they found a way to say, yes, he's a miracle worker, but he's still not somebody to follow. And he's certainly not the Messiah. They could not dispute the miraculous power of Jesus over demons, and so they sought to discredit him. We see the first objection in verse 15. <clears throat> I have to excuse my voice today. Some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that word Beelzebul is not familiar to many of us, I noticed when we were doing the scripture reading. Uh, everybody read that verse, and then when they got to that word, everybody just got real quiet because uh, they weren't quite sure how to, how to pronounce it the first time. Uh, Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. And so we know that these people who accused him were the Pharisees. Okay, it says in Luke, some of them, but Matthew clarifies in chapter 12. He says, when, some of the, uh, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. And so uh, the Pharisees' first objection to this miraculous act of Jesus was to claim that he was working under the power of Satan. Uh, Beelzebul is simply a term that they had for Satan. He's the, the prince of the demons. We know this in part because Jesus substitutes Beelzebul for Satan later when he says uh, Satan doesn't cast out Satan. So Beelzebul is just simply a title uh, to refer to the devil. They're accusing Jesus of working his miracles with the power of Satan as if he was indwelled by the devil. So that's the first objection these religious people raise. Jesus can't be the Messiah. This can't be a good thing that he's doing. He's just possessed by Satan, and that's how he has this power. Second objection that others raised in verse 16 says, well, uh, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And by the way, these others that Luke uh, doesn't specify are clarified once again in Matthew's gospel, and they are also Pharisees. Uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew says, answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And so some of these religious guys are saying, uh, you, you shouldn't listen to Jesus. You, you shouldn't follow him because he's just working through the power of Satan. Others of them are saying, well, we need, a, we need a sign in order to believe that he's truly the Messiah. We need a sign before we'll believe. And that's really rich considering he had just performed a sign and they're rejecting it. I mean, he had just cast out a demon from somebody. That's the, act, the action uh, that, that preci precipitated this entire conversation, this back and forth was this miraculous act of Jesus. And yet they're saying, we need more proof. Do something else. And what's even more incredible about the blindness of these religious people is that this action of Jesus was specifically one of the signs that Isaiah had said to look for. Isaiah 35 verse 4 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Now notice these words, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So God is coming to the people, 
and, and he's going to save them. Now he gets into some of the signs of his arrival. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus did all of those things throughout his ministry. He gave them all the signs they needed. He fulfilled everything that the prophet said uh, to look for when the arrival of God would be there. That, that's exactly what Jesus did. Conclusion, therefore, should be Jesus is God. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah who would come and save the people from their sins. And yet, with all of these signs, with all of this evidence, it still wasn't enough for some of them. They just demanded that Jesus do another sign. We need more proof before we'll believe. Now, Jesus responds in the next several verses to these two objections. So get this picture in your mind. You have objection number one. Uh, Jesus shouldn't be followed because he's working with Satan. He's, he's possessed of the devil. That's how he has this power. Objection number two, Jesus shouldn't be followed because we just don't have enough evidence. There's not enough proof of his real power. We need more signs. Now, these objections were not spoken directly to Jesus. It seems that they were kind of muttered uh, out of his earshot, that people were spreading these rumors, but they weren't actually saying them to Christ. And so in verse 17, it says, But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and that divided household falls. I love that as they are dismissing his deity, he is responding to the objections they didn't even say to him. And at this point, they may not have realized he was even responding to them. He's just making a statement. Every divided kingdom comes to destruction. Every divided house falls. That is a self-evidently true statement. If you're fighting against your own team, it won't take long before you're destroyed. Abraham Lincoln famously quoted this in the context of the slavery in America and the Civil War that came, that a divided household is going to lead to our country's destruction. And so Jesus says this thing. It's, a, it's an obvious, true statement. Nobody would argue with this principle. Then he makes his point in verse 18. And, th and at this point, the Pharisees realize, oh, he's, he's refuting our objections. Verse 18, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, you guys are idiots. Satan would not be empowering me uh, to fight against his demons. That makes no sense. I mean, really, that, that, that's the best you could come up with. So that's the response to the first objection. Satan doesn't fight against himself, and it's illogical to think that Satan was the one giving Jesus power over his demons. Uh, then you have the second response to that first objection. We're still on the Beelzebul thing. Uh, verse 19, he, he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Okay, so let's grant for a minute that what you're saying is true. Okay, I'm casting out demons by Satan. How are you guys doing it? The religious Jews claimed to have this ability as well. They claimed to be able to cast out demons. Now, they couldn't actually do it. That's why this power of Jesus was such a shock to the people around them, because they'd never seen anything like this. Matthew 9, verse 33, the, uh, When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. So the Pharisees and their followers claimed to have this ability over demons. Uh, but it was not actual. It was a fraud. They could not actually do this. Jesus, on the other hand, clearly could. And the people were so shocked and amazed by this. They had never seen anything like this before. They know Jesus is the real deal, and he has power unlike the Jewish religious leaders. And so they conclude that this might be the Messiah. The Pharisees then are trying to discredit Jesus because he's showing them up. 
The Pharisees claimed this power, but Jesus really had it. And they couldn't deny it, so instead of trying to deny it, they said that Jesus was only able to do this because he's working with the devil. And so for the sake of argument, Jesus grants their point and says, okay, you say I'm casting out demons because I'm using Satan's power. Then you need to be held by the same standard. How are you guys doing it? How are you casting them out? And so that pretty much uh, destroys their first objection. Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this is the right conclusion that they should have come to. This miracle working power of Jesus was proof of his divinity, that he was God, that the king had come. This was the, ki- the finger of God at work. That language uh, echoes what we see in the book of Exodus. You remember the plagues of Moses against uh, Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians? The, the magicians of Pharaoh tried to copy those miracles for a while, but eventually they couldn't do it. They could not replicate uh, the signs that God was giving. And so in Exodus 8 verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And that same power that worked these miracles back in Exodus is the power working in Jesus. And so his point is, if it isn't Satan that's doing this, which we've already ruled out, then the only logical conclusion left is that it is God's power. Back to our text, verse 20. If it is the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This miracle power of Jesus proves that he is God and that the kingdom of God is here. God's kingdom began 2,000 years ago when Jesus arrived. It was proven time and time again by the power of God on display throughout his ministry. And so this is an if-then statement. If it is by the power of God, then the kingdom has come. If it is by, by, uh, we already know it's not by Satan's power. That's illogical. That's ridiculous. The only conclusion an honest person can come to then is that the kingdom of God has arrived. And so let's say that the first evidence of a true Christian, and we'll flush this out more, is a recognition of who Jesus is. In order to be a part of God's kingdom, in order to be a Christian, you first have to recognize that Jesus is God. Verse 21, we're still on the first objection. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So the strong man in this uh, analogy is Satan. Satan guards his palace, his house, and protects, in this case, the person that he's possessed. We're going to see this later, that uh, Jesus refers to a demon-possessed person as a house for a demon. Okay, and so uh, Satan has control over his house. He's a strong man, and he guards it. But then Jesus comes, and Jesus is the stronger man. He comes and attacks him, and he overtakes him. And he takes that person who Satan had previously possessed, and he sets him free from the devil's control. It's a simple analogy to say, if I can take stuff from Satan, then I'm stronger than him. If I can cast out his demons from possessing a person, then I'm not a demon. I'm somebody stronger and more powerful, namely God. And so a Christian first is somebody who recognizes who Jesus is. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. That is a hard statement from Jesus. If you're not for me, you're against me. A Christian then is somebody who first recognizes who Jesus is, and a Christian is somebody who is with Jesus, meaning he's chosen his team. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. If you're not on his side, you might as well worship the devil. You can't say, I'm, I'm sort of a Christian. No, you're not. 
You're either in or you're out. You also can't be a Christian and anything else. You can't say, well, well I'm a Christian and a Muslim. I, I believe in Jesus and Buddha. Uh, that doesn't work. You can't believe what Jesus said and think that some other religions are right too. Because one of the things that Jesus said was that he's the only way. He taught that salvation is only found through him. He said, if you don't worship through me, you're not truly worshiping God. And so don't try to hold together multiple religions. Jesus won't let you do that. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive truth claim. Christianity isn't a way, it's the way. As Peter said in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's pretty clear. No salvation is found in anyone but Jesus. And you notice verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John to say this and perceive that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They could tell uh, these guys had been with Jesus because Jesus said this sort of offensive thing all the time, uh, that it's only through me. Salvation is only through Christ. And so being a Christian means you recognize who Jesus is and you choose him. And in choosing Jesus, you are rejecting everything else. You're not a Christian if you think there's other ways to worship God than through Christ. Back to our text, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Not only is Jesus the only way, but there's no neutral ground with him. You can't say, I think Jesus was a good teacher because he said he was God. And so you either believe he's God or you believe he's a liar. And if he lied about who he is, I'm not sure how you can say he's a good teacher. Uh, you, you can't claim Jesus was a good teacher if you reject his main lesson. And that's what so many people try to do. They try to be neutral with Jesus. But he says, you're either on his side all the way or you're against him. Being a Christian then doesn't mean you just like some of what Jesus taught. It means you're on his side with both feet. You're not just tipping your toe in the water. You're fully on. Verse 24, and this is probably the most difficult part of the whole text to sort out. Verse 24, I'll do my best. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. In finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, if you want to know what it means about demons passing through waterless places, uh, what all is going on there, I have no idea. So you're asking the wrong person. But I think I get the overall thing that Jesus is trying to teach here is that you can't fix yourself, you need Jesus. This is the second time that Jesus compares a demon-possessed person to a house. And here he's saying, uh, when a demon leaves a person for a period of time, it's, it's like leaving a house. And we see in the New Testament, this is a common thing. Demon possession was not always 24-7. Uh, you see uh, instances where a demon would come a, uh, upon somebody for a period of time and oppress them and then leave them for a little while. And so it wasn't like it was just there all the time oppressing them constantly. Sometimes they would come and go. And I think what Jesus is saying is some of you think that the solution to demon possession is when the demon is gone, try to clean up your house. Uh, try to clean up your life. Sweep the house. Put things in order. In the Greek word, it's uh, cosmeto, from where we get cosmetics. Make things look good. 
Uh, just, just fix things up. Clean, clean up your life when the demon's gone. Make everything look good. But then the demon just comes back with seven of his friends and enters right back in, and you're even worse than before. And if you contrast that image with the previous analogy, Jesus said back there that the stronger man can overpower Satan and free the possessed person. And so putting the two together, Jesus is saying, you can't fix yourself. You need me. You need Jesus. You need the power of God to overcome Satan. Becoming a Christian then is not behavior modification. It's not turning over a new leaf. Becoming a Christian is giving your life over to the control of Jesus. Only he can fix you. Only he can give you the power to overcome sin. Becoming a Christian is not you doing better, you trying harder. The only way to live a life that is pleasing to God is first to turn to Christ and place your faith in him. And as a result of that, God will empower your transformation. 1 John 3, verse 5, John writes, You know that he appeared, Jesus, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, I uh, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the, de for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, that's a Christian, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Uh, John is very explicit throughout his letter to say, uh, you're not a Christian unless transformation has taken place in your life. You can't go on living in sin and say, well, I'm a Christian uh, because I prayed a prayer because I raised my hand at a service. No, no, no. Uh, true Christians live like it. True Christians experience a transformation of the life. And John says, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Children of the devil live in sin. Children of God live in righteousness. Now, here's the question, and a very key question, how? How do we do this? Is this, is this us earning our salvation by not sinning and, and trying harder? No, we are born again, and then Christ's power in us leads us to do right and resist temptation. As John clarifies in chapter 5, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. How? <laughs> but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world uh, lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. A truly transformed life that lives according to the commands of God starts with understanding who Jesus is, choosing him alone, and placing your faith in him. And that changes you from the inside out. Verse 27, uh, back to our text. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. This is a proud mama moment here. Uh, Jesus just did a great thing, cast out a demon. And this woman is thinking, man, your mom must be really proud of you. Verse 28, he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary was blessed. Uh, Gabriel said she was highly favored among women. She had the unbelievable opportunity to carry God inside her. 
And Jesus says, you're blessed if you hear the word of God and keep it. And as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells us, which means we carry God inside of us. What does it mean to be a true Christian? Notice Jesus said, not only those who hear the word of God, but also those who keep it. You're not just a blessed person for being here at church today and hearing the word of God unless you keep it. Everyone in that crowd was hearing the word of God, including the Pharisees. Uh, the religious people, they were hearing the word of God just like the rest. But only those who kept it would be blessed. Those who rejected it by dismissing Jesus or demanding more signs, they would be judged. And so you're not blessed this morning by being in our church service if you reject what you hear. In fact, uh, you're actually compounding your judgment every time you hear and reject the word of God. A true Christian hears the word of God and keeps it, lives by it, does what God says to do. And so are there 2 billion Christians in the world? Not even close. Uh, is 70% of our country Christian? Not a chance. Uh, they may like Jesus. They may uh, know some things about him. But a true Christian does what Jesus says. You aren't a true Christian just because you decide one day you're going to accept that label. Being a true Christian means being a follower of Jesus. So how about you? Are you a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? Now, all of that was in response to the first objection about Beelzebul. Okay, that whole discourse is talking about uh, the, the objection that they had raised. But there was a second objection, you remember. They said, we need more proof. Uh, do another sign, Jesus, and then maybe we'll believe that you're God. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, these people had seen Jesus do incredible things. He had healed all manner of sickness and disease and demon possession throughout Israel. He had done everything that Isaiah had prophesied he would do, and they still did not believe. Another sign wasn't going to convince them. But they were going to get one more sign, the sign of Jonah. Now, I hope we all know about Jonah. Uh, the story of Jonah is a very popular one, but in case you don't, here is a refresher. Come listen to my tale of Jonah and the whale way down in the middle of the ocean. Now, how did he get there? Whatever did he wear way down in the middle of the ocean? Preaching he should be at Nineveh, you see. To disobey is a very foolish notion. But God forgave his sin. Salvation entered in way down in the middle of the ocean. If you come Wednesday, I might even be compelled to sing that for you. Um, it's amazing how a song from your childhood just sticks in your brain. And it's a simple little tune, but it really gets across the story of Jonah. He disobeyed God. He ended up in the stomach of a big fish. And after three days, he repented and God had the fish vomit him out. Now, what does all that have to do with Jesus? Well, we don't have to guess because Jesus explains in Matthew's version. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, so here we're talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and then came out alive. Jesus is going to be buried, dead for three days, and then he'll come back to life. That final climactic act of Christ will be the last sign the people get about who Jesus is. But the sign of Jesus' resurrection did not convince them either. Again, I say that it wasn't for lack of proof that they rejected Christ. Another sign wasn't going to convince them. When Jesus was buried following the crucifixion, you remember Roman soldiers uh, were ordered to guard the tomb. 
And of course, Jesus still rose again. They could not stop him. The soldiers came to the religious people after Christ's resurrection. They reported what had taken place. And look at the reaction of these people. Verse 11 of Matthew 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, those Roman soldiers, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. They knew Christ rose again. They could not deny it. And yet instead of embracing Jesus as the Messiah, uh, they are still rejecting him, even after this sign of Christ coming back to life. They pay off the soldiers to spread a lie. The sign of Jonah did not convince them either, because it wasn't a lack of proof that caused them to reject Christ. No amount of evidence would be enough. Jesus moves on in our text to, con to uh, condemn them for their blindness and verse 31 says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you know these two very... Uh, popular stories from the Old Testament, the Queen of Sheba. She travels a long distance to visit Solomon because she hears about his wisdom. She recognized the unique wisdom that Solomon had. And the men of Nineveh recognized that Jonah was a true prophet of God, and they responded appropriately by repenting at his message. But the men of Jesus' generation were blind to who he was. They saw the miraculous acts and attributed them to Satan. They heard the wisdom and preaching of Christ, and they rejected his message instead of repenting. Jesus continues in verse 33, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Here's what Jesus is saying. I've put the light out there. There's plenty of evidence of who Jesus was. Anybody with eyes could see it. And they just kept asking for more signs, more proof. And Jesus is saying here, your inability to see the light is not because the light is too dim. It's because your eyes are shut. If you don't get by now who Jesus is, that's on you. These religious people were closing their eyes to the blinding light of who he was. If your eyes can't see through these works to the true identity of Christ, I'm sorry, if your eyes can see through these works uh, to who Jesus really is, you are full of light. If you don't see him, you are full of darkness. Verse 35, that instruction, therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful that the light in you isn't actually darkness. Some of you may think you're in the light and you're really in the dark. And Jesus says, open your eyes. They couldn't see who Jesus was. They couldn't recognize it. Not because there wasn't uh, evidence, not because the truth of his identity was unclear, but because they had their eyes shut tight. Every time he did another miracle, they started to look for a reason to discredit it instead of believing his message. We've seen this already in our study of Luke. Jesus would do something great, uh, heal somebody who's been in some affliction for a long period of time. And what do the Pharisees do? They criticize him for doing it on the Sabbath. 
There was plenty of evidence. The teaching was clear. The, 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 the miracles were obvious. They just refused to receive him. There are two ways that people approach Jesus. Submission or suspicion. Submission leads to a life of light. And suspicion, which would be something like demanding more signs, uh, claiming he's demon-possessed, that type of suspicion leads to judgment. So what does it mean to be a true Christian? You approach Jesus with a heart of submission, not suspicion. Jesus taught on another occasion something very similar, Luke 8, verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be, made, uh, not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. Jesus says, take care how you hear. Be careful. If you hear the word of God with an attitude of suspicion, watch out. Submission is the heart of a true Christian. One who hears the word of God and does it. So the first thing that I think we should take away from our text this morning is the reality of the miracles of Christ. We just celebrated a couple of weeks ago, along with millions of people around the world, uh, Easter, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Jesus is the one person to raise himself from the dead. And that one act, it may be dismissed or explained away by some people today, but it's a fact. Jesus was dead. He was buried for three days. His tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers because they knew he had predicted his own resurrection. And yet he still rose from the dead. He rolled the stone away. He was seen by hundreds of witnesses uh, even after his resurrection. And those people gave their lives preaching and pro proclaiming the resurrected Christ. They would not have died uh, for something that they knew was a fraud, something that they knew was a lie. And so we need to reckon this morning with the resurrection of Christ. That is the sign, uh, the sign of Jonah, the only sign we need to know who Jesus was. Historically, there's overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Christ. That single act shook the whole world. That's why it's 2021 right now. We are in the year 2021 because that's how many years it's been since Christ rose from the dead. You can dismiss it if you want, but you can't ignore Jesus. You have to make the choice to believe or reject. We need to come face to face with the reality of Christ's miracles, but we can't stop there. We then need to see through those miracles to ask, who is this man? Uh, you can either dismiss Jesus as some crazy, uh, demon-possessed person like these Pharisees did, or we can uh, decide that there's some other explanation for Jesus' resurrection, like maybe he wasn't fully dead, uh, maybe the whole thing was a conspiracy, or you can believe what he said about himself. You can believe that the kingdom of God did come. And the proof that Jesus was God is not only seen in his miracles, but also in the spreading of his kingdom since he left. Most movements die when the leader dies, but when Jesus died and rose again, his movement was just getting started. And today, millions of people all over the world are celebrating the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus is God. His miracles were a clear expression of his divinity. The kingdom of God had come, and every person in that crowd had a decision to make. Are you going to dismiss this man, or are you going to hear the word of God and keep it? Are you going to reject Jesus and his commands, or are you going to submit to him as king? Those are the only two choices. Again, there is no neutral ground. We either approach Jesus with submission 
or suspicion. We can try to explain him away, or we can bow the knee to him as our Lord and Savior. And so, concluding here, what does it mean to be a true Christian? Number one, a true Christian recognizes who Jesus is. He is God. He is the Messiah. He is the King. Number two, to be a true Christian, you have to pick a side. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. Whoever is not with him is against him. You must choose to follow Christ alone. Number three, a true Christian is one who is trusting in the power of Christ. You can't fix you. You can't earn salvation. You can't atone for your sin. You can't turn your life around. So stop trying on your own and give your heart to Christ. Number four, a true Christian doesn't just hear the word of God, but does it. And that should be obvious that a follower of Jesus is somebody who follows Jesus. And yet, unfortunately, that point is often missed. Number five, a true Christian is one who submits to Jesus as Lord. You first acknowledge that Jesus is the king, and then you respond appropriately by humbly bowing in service to Christ. That's what a Christian is. It's not just somebody who believes Jesus was a good person. It's not just somebody who even believes Jesus was God. As James reminds us, the devils believe Jesus is God. That doesn't make them Christians. A true Christian is not just somebody who comes to church, somebody who reads the Bible, somebody who, who hears the word of God. A true Christian is one who responds with obedience to it. If you approach the Bible with suspicion, you need to pick a side. Pick and choose an attitude. I'm sorry, if you have a pick and choose attitude towards Scripture, instead of hearing and obeying, submitting to the word of Christ, that's not the heart of a true Christian. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.